six cars hit train. Ah, ah, ah. This week, it's another week and another car hitting a train. Plus, Boyle Street gets another permit for their new space, and we get details on how much the city of Edmonton spent making space. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 214, and a special welcome back to you, Mac. You were gone last week on vacation. How was it? Are you coming back nice and refreshed? Yeah, it always takes you a couple of days when you get into a vacation to disconnect and everything, but uh, once you're there, it's nice. Great to be away, and yes, feeling refreshed and happy to get back into it. Well, get back into it, we shall, but first with the rapid fire. EPCOR has begun adding orthophosphate to City of Edmonton-treated water in a bid to reduce the lead contamination in certain areas of the city. The move is widely regarded as a positive one, which should improve health outcomes of residents, but others aren't so sure. We spoke with one resident over the phone as he couldn't leave his house due to government-enforced 15-minute quarantine zones, who outlined the master plan to use the chemical to coat Edmontonians' brains, eventually leading to a docile, mind-controlled pack of woke zombies. Which is actually a good piece of synergy, as a study released this week named Edmonton as the best city in which to survive the zombie apocalypse. The third-party transit planning app, simply called Transit, is no longer completely free for Edmonton riders, with users needing to subscribe to the Royale tier in order to get features like long-distance and long-timeline route planning. The company said in a statement, quote, We want Edmonton Transit users to feel at home in our app, so we decided to increase the cost or fair, if you will, to use our service, a change that is very intimately familiar to Edmonton Transit users. With increasing downtown vacancy rates, Edmonton City Council has looked to around-the-block lines at Kingsway Mall for solutions. In a public hearing this week, City Council has approved new bylaw amendments requiring all towers in the downtown business area to have a first-floor podium consisting exclusively of Zeller's retail locations, serving hot chicken sandwiches from 10 to 6 daily. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, you're choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at APN as well, so it's a great fit. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. Speaking of electricity, um, you'll recall during the budget at the end of last year, the solar rebate was approved for only this year, only 2023. It won't be in effect in subsequent years. And Mac, we have officially come out of the first quarter of 2023. Brief update. There's no solar rebate as of yet. There's no communication of when there will be a solar rebate, and no one has received any information of what that program will look like when it inevitably launches. So I guess we're to take from that that only, what, 900,000 Edmontonians told the city manager that it's important to them? (laughs) If we could just get those million voices saying, do your job, maybe it would get done. Uh, But that's not what we're going to talk about this week. We're going to talk about news of the week, things that actually happened. And one of those was a Edmonton Journal article was published that revealed the cost for the zoning podcast, Making Space. You might remember this podcast from our rapid fire segments where we made fun of the city of Edmonton for launching a zoning podcast. 
And Mac, it turns out it cost $70,000. So a local firm called Sticks and Stones Communications was paid $50,000 to develop and produce the podcast. And then they spent another $20,000 on advertising after the fact, and uh, or after it was created, rather. And Troy, I loved your tweet about the advertising, because what happens if you Google making space? Searching Making Space Podcast does not get you the City of Edmonton podcast, despite the $20,000 or $4 per listen ad spend. Yeah, so this uh, article said that each episode, there was five episodes in this series about zoning. Each one was downloaded an average of about a thousand times, ranging, you know, with a bit of a range there. So not a huge number of listens given the amount they spent. That is 209 fewer episodes than this podcast, which, Mac, um, I'm not paid $10,000 an episode to do this. Yeah, nor am I. But uh, man, if the city's throwing around $20,000 on advertising for a five-episode podcast, I'm left wondering how we can get some of that action. And I'm being a little bit facetious here, but not exactly, because I do think there's a huge opportunity for municipalities, not just in Edmonton, but municipalities across the board to support local journalism in a way that they haven't in the past. And, uh, you know, I obviously am biased and think local journalism is really important for uh, communities. And they could have, I think, I think they could have spent that money better. For sure. And now putting aside the $50,000 spent to produce the podcast and just focusing on the 20000 spent on advertising. Yeah. That's where we can find clearly the city went wrong because spending twenty grand to get 5,000 listens not a great return on investment, specifically because, and I think this is where our listeners can agree, the people who would be interested in a well-produced zoning podcast and the people that are currently listening to me saying this right now are a perfect circle. The city of Edmonton could have thrown us a little chunk of that advertising change and we could have put an episode in the feed. We could have put a trailer, all manner of things to get our listeners over to that podcast and something they'd be interested in. But instead, they spent $20,000 on what? Google ads, Instagram reels? Not quite sure where that ad spend went. And I wanted to bring that up because it's actually a pretty good podcast, like from a production standpoint. Should it exist? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think podcasts are the best form for short form city information. Like the point of a podcast is to build subscribers over time and use that to disseminate information, not to do one off five episodes on a thing. But listening to the podcast, it sounds like someone listened to 99% Invisible, said, I want that, and then asked Sticks and Stones Communication to make that, and they did. It's pretty good. It's pretty well produced. It's got nice music. It's got good recording, good production values. It's just something that doesn't quite need to exist. I mean, I'm all for the city trying different forms of communication to try and get the message out. And zoning is one of those things that you bring it up and most people's eyes glaze over. And so maybe a podcast is an interesting way to go about that. Like, I don't think we should discourage the city from trying new things. And as the, you know, the Post Media article points out, the $70,000 they spent on this is really a drop in the bucket compared to the overall communications and engagement budget at the city, right? Which is just about $35 million. So, you know, it's not like they broke the bank on this, but, you know, looking at it from more of that opportunity cost point of view, the city of Edmonton itself doesn't need to be a content creator. It could support other local content creators and still achieve the outcomes it's looking for. Of course, all of this is in the past. The five-episode run of the podcast has come and gone, and I suspect after the attention this article has received, the city is not keen on making season two of uh, Making Space. I mean, they also, we should remember, 
developed this pre-chat GPT and pre-Dolly. So, you know, those costs would be a lot lower today, Troy. <laughs> sure. Uh, chat GPT, record me a podcast. One other thing that's going to get developed in the city is the new Boyle Street Community Services Center, which you'll recall had their development permit revoked by the SDAB. And the city has this week issued a brand new permit to Boyle Street to start construction. Yeah, they're celebrating a new Class A development permit. So this is on 101st Street at 107th A Avenue. Um, and on March 21st, it was given the green light to go ahead. And the organization, Boyle Street, has raised about 80% of the $28.5 million it needs to build the project. And now they're pretty thrilled, obviously, that this can, can go forward. So in order to get this new permit, I understand they had to make some changes. Yes, the initial proposal that went to the SDAB was ruled insufficient for the space, but it wasn't that the entire building could not be built on the space. The SDAB found issue with a certain subset of the amenities within the new building. Namely, there was a ceremonial space and there was also a kitchen. I believe a basketball court was at issue. And Boyle Street disagreed with the SDAB's assessment, but said, fine, all right, you've said we can't have these certain amenities in our facility. Let's remove them from the plan and resubmit to the city. So they have a new permit that complies with these regulations set out by the SDAB. And if the community wants to appeal this once again to the SDAB, the SDAB would need to find a new reason that this building couldn't be built. And I don't know about you, Mac, but if, for example, you ruled that a building was inappropriate for use because of these five reasons, and then the building corrects those five reasons, and then you find it insufficient for the community for a new set of five reasons, that's starting to look like vexatious nimbyism to me. So I suspect this might go forward. I would be surprised, as, as you point out, if this was appealed again and the Subdivision Appeal Board found reason to revoke this new permit. I mean, that said... If there were things that weren't raised in the initial complaint that are raised now that, you know, by the book would be a problem, then they would have no choice, of course, but to revoke this new permit. So we could maybe be going around in circles here a little bit. The community, in particular, the uh, Chinatown Area Business Association and the Chinese Benevolent Association are really upset about this project, right? They feel like trust has been broken here. They feel like this is the city going back on its previous statements around concentration of services and things like that. So if there is a way to find fault with the project, I'm sure they're they're working on that. I was actually in Chinatown getting dinner just last night uh, and I biked through. Um, it was a nice day, so it was nice to bike through. And one thing that I noticed, because I did bike past the location of this new facility, is where this facility will be constructed on 107A and 101 Street, it's kind of on, I'll call it the edge of the concentration of services area. So I'm not sure I actually buy that this is a further concentration of services because it's moved further to the fringes of the location. Boyle Street currently operates sort of closer and further south than this new location. Yeah, but I mean, in the scale of Edmonton, it's pretty close. It might as yeah. well be next Fair. door, right? And, uh, and and 107th Avenue certainly has had its share of struggles coming out of the pandemic, lots of closures and stuff actually along that area. So, you know, I can kind of understand the point of view there, but I don't know that it's necessarily a bad thing. And it's not 
you know, like you say, it's kind of the edge of Chinatown, right? It's Chinatown, Macaulay, Central McDougal, lots of these adjacent uh, neighborhoods in the area do have, you know, a large number of, of, uh, of services. But I'm not sure that the, the best solution is to just move those far away throughout the city. There's some benefit to having those things co-located. Of course, this is all ignoring what we've harped on a billion times on this podcast, that the solution is actually to solve the problem. Uh, yeah. None of these interim and harm reduction services actually solve the problem. They just reduce harm while the problem occurs. Housing and permanent social supports is the only way we're going to get out of this issue permanently. Yeah, Carmen McNary, who's with the Build for Boyle funding campaign, so the, the group that's uh, fundraising for this new building, he said exactly that. He said, the change on our streets will not happen because we get this building built. But, you know, that doesn't change the significance of it and the importance of it. I think it's also worth noting that in tandem to this, Boyle Street is also trying to construct a new facility in Ritchie, south of the river, nowhere near Chinatown. So there is active effort to spread services over a larger area of the city. Sure, they're not going to Ellerslie right now, but I don't think it's true to say that we are focusing exclusively on downtown for these types of services. I think we're focusing on where the need is, which unfortunately, the Chinatown area does have a pretty significant need at this point in time. And we've actually learned this week that that South Ritchie location, the one you're talking about, this um, the Boyle Street Health Hub, as they call it in Ritchie, has been approved and they've received a development permit. So it looks like that project is going to go ahead as well. Note it is approved by the city of Edmonton. It yes. has not been approved by the province of Alberta, which is required to actually operate safe consumption services. So the health hub with everything except the SCS is approved to go forward. That additional provincial piece is required to actually offer safe consumption services. And Boyle Street is hoping to do that by the fall. Of course, we're not the only one who talks about the need for social supports and uh, supportive housing services. Mayor Amarjeet Sohi has constantly been on that line and once again was on that line this week as the federal budget for 2023 was announced. And Mayor Sohi, of course, said it did not go far enough to tackle the challenges of urban centers when it comes to issues like houselessness and the housing crisis. Yes, he was uh, appreciative of some of the investments that were announced in the budget. So there's a lot of money in this budget, this federal budget on health, both dental, but also mental health and addiction support. And those are good things that will have an impact, hopefully, in Edmonton as well. But probably not as much around the affordable housing, which I know many municipalities across the country had been advocating for and addressing that that ongoing housing crisis. And that was something the mayor commented on. One thing he didn't comment as much on, which I thought might be of interest, is that this, in addition to health, this budget also has a lot of money in it for clean technology, clean electricity, hydrogen, that kind of thing, which has been a focus of economic development in Edmonton and in, in the Edmonton region. So one of the new things is you know tax credits for clean tech and electricity and hydrogen, as well as you know for additional investment to uh, support carbon capture and storage and some of the other things that Edmonton seems to be a hotbed for. Yeah, absolutely. And this isn't necessarily a new investment space for the federal government. We've heard for the better part of a decade now increasing federal investments in this sort of clean tech and hydrogen area. But it's nice to see that continue. Um, yes, I agree. It does seem like, at least in the reporting I've read, that this is a bit of a reaction to the United States investing more in clean tech, which is really funny because they haven't, you know, historically been thought of as the front of the pack leader here in terms of shifting to this new 
green economy. But hey, if it gets more funding into uh, into that for Canada, then that, that's probably a good thing. That's exactly how I read this. This is sort of just reactionary to the symptoms, doing a little bit of something, maybe not the best possible thing. And there was more of that in the federal budget in the part that probably everyone is going to interact with most, and that is the grocery tax. I wanted to draw a specific highlight to this just because it was my mom's birthday last week and I mentioned to her, hey, are you excited about the uh, grocery tax credit? And she's like, oh, oh, I didn't know we were going to get one. How much is it? And I said, $254, I think. She's like, every month? I said, no. No, it's just once. <laughs> That'll go a long way to solving those grocery bills, won't it? It would seem to me that if we wanted to do something about the price of groceries, there might be another way other than tax money back to people after they've already spent the money and enriched the billionaire owners of our grocery chains. But I digress. Of course, addressing root causes does tend to be hard. And that is a theme. I don't know if you're picking up, dear listener, but we're establishing some themes here. And let's continue on that theme a little bit and talk about on-demand transit, which this week in a report was lauded as an absolute success for the city of Edmonton. So the provider here conducted a survey in October 2022 and said that uh, about 73% of all users of on-demand transit don't have a personal vehicle and that 84% of them would support an expansion in the service to prevent long wait times. Yeah, and that all sounds very great. But let's just flip this on its head and say that 84% of residents who we have cut all bus service to and gave a scrap from a private provider would support additional scraps being distributed to them. On-demand transit, which you mentioned is provided via VIA, VIA is the on-demand transit app provider. It is a private vestige of our public transit system. And I think that we are still lauding this as a success indicates some of the failures of our public transit system, which has been chronically underinvested in the past decade and a half. On-demand transit, you'll recall, was when we did the bus service redesign, where we had higher frequency routes to better support core areas with more sustainable transit that's higher frequency and more reliable. That came at the expense of service to the fringes of our city because we were unwilling to invest additional transit dollars. So we had an on-demand app that people who absolutely needed transit because they didn't have a car could still get around a little bit. And it's in that way that I see on-demand transit as once again, a subsidy to cars. It allows us to continue to sprawl, to continue to have this development pattern, and to continue to say that we serve all these areas via transit without actually doing that. If 84% of your users are saying we want an expansion in our existing services because of long wait times to use it, perhaps, and I'm just spitballing here, those are captive users who don't have a car and have no other option and are being provided with a subpar inadequate option. Yeah, of course, council approved uh, almost $43 million for on-demand transit over this four-year budget cycle. And ETS said it is looking at ways to both expand service and reduce wait times. But, you know, I think this is a good opportunity to remind listeners, too, that when you look at this article, you click through the show notes and you see the chart, remember, remember the context, right? So this chart shows that on-demand transit usage has gone up. But ridership overall in ETS has gone up coming out of the pandemic. So 
of course it's gone up. People have returned to going out and doing things and going places. And it's not gone up so significantly that it's unusual, right? So I think, like you say, Troy, there are captive folks here who don't have another option. Uh, so of course we would expect the ridership to increase a little bit for on-demand transit. That doesn't mean that it's you know, uh, a shift of people who used to have cars who are now using transit and this is what they've got. It's just probably a more in line with the, the way ridership overall has recovered for transit. Of course, we can't talk about transit this week without talking about the quantity of personal vehicles that have collided with Valley Line LRT cars during the testing period. And another one was just earlier this morning, we're recording on Wednesday, March 29th, when a taxi turned into a Valley Line LRT. And I don't mean taxi transformed into a Valley Line LRT. I mean, a taxi performed an illegal turn and collided with a train. (laughs) That would be so interesting if it was a transformer. Yeah, no, this is just another example of drivers illegally turning on a red light and running into the train, which I just don't understand how that happens, Troy. It's it's not like the trains are hidden. (laughs) They're trains. Uh, they, They are large. They're train sized even. One could expect (laughs) to see them. And I have to laugh. Every time TransEd posts a tweet, they say, if you see tracks, expect a train. And truly, if we have to say that, we've failed. That you can't go from having to remind people that trains go on train tracks and expect broad success and compliance. This is funny until it stops being funny. And it stops being funny because of all the coverage around this. Every time a car collides with the Valley Line LRT. And really, it's not its not a car. It's the driver of a car. Fair. These are not self-driving cars. There are drivers here not paying attention or ignoring the rules of the road. Yeah, so, and I have to laugh because the taxi on March 29th this morning, it was a right turn on a green light at a, at an intersection that has prohibited right turns for the better part of five years now. This is the intersection at Bonnie Dune on 90th Ave, where there used to be a traffic circle, but it has been changed into a set of lights. And le- right turns have been prohibited 100% of the time, not just on red, not just on green. 100% of the time, right turns are prohibited at that location. And yet, the taxi turned right on a green into a train that was there. The first thing that I saw when this happened was Global News wondering, who was at fault here? Could it have been the taxi driver or was it the train that was at fault? Which I think highlights the first major problem with the discourse. The idea that a train could ever be at fault because trains do have the right of way. They're on tracks. They're huge vehicles. They will never be at fault for this because that's not how our roadway system works. But then the comment section on every single one of these posts where the takeaway from drivers being unable to safely operate motor vehicles is this is why we need gates and bells. And that is just so very much the wrong takeaway and so very much proves something that you mentioned to me earlier on this week that this train was not designed for the city and for the people in it. It was designed mostly as car infrastructure. And yet they're never pleased, right? There was another story this week, too, about adjusting the signal lights to improve safety. And there was a driver in Mill Woods who's complaining about the intersection at 28th Avenue and 66th Street and said it's dangerous because the timing of the red lights forces drivers to either stop on the tracks or run the red, not 
stop prior to the tracks or drive more safely in that area or it's like the train's fault and i think it's just this pervasive car culture which is i think been reinforced by the design of this train as i said it's not for car or not for people it's been designed for cars and you know i walk past this line downtown every single day as you all know and and the downtown experience is not much different i mean there are people that run past the tracks all the time uh but they're quick enough to get out of the way and the trains lay on the horns as we've talked about but it's the design of the tracks that make it such that it's really about the cars so we have this traffic lane of course which means we have a concrete and glass wall along the entire side of the station so it's not really low floor you can't just walk up to the station you have to go all the way around to one of the two entry points to get to that train, to get to that to that station. It's the timing of the lights. When the train is going through an intersection, why aren't pedestrians allowed to walk alongside? Why is there no walk light? You know, what flashes is the amber do not walk sign. Even though traffic is all stopped and the train is going the same direction as you because it's designed for cars, so cars can turn right, right? When there's no pedestrians, you know, walking. Why do we have the monstrosity that is Davies Station? It's for cars. It's not for people. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things about the design of this line that really just reinforce the idea that it was built in a way to, to support cars. Probably, I remember, you know, it was sold with the idea, too, that if we get more people on the train, there'll be less people in the roads and traffic will be better, right? I mean, it's even pitched as a way to, you know, make things better for drivers. And so it's not surprising, given this, given the design of this line and how car-oriented it is, that drivers feel totally entitled and when things don't go well here, the, the problem is with the train and not with the cars. This is very much car infrastructure, but we were sold this bill of goods that because we were doing this low floor urban LRT with no bells and gates, it would support better urban design, better integrated communities, and we would be able to have transit-oriented development along the line. And we still might, except if this narrative continues to persist, because Cars will not stop colliding with these trains. Well, I'd be very happy to see the World Bollard Association's uh, posts <laughs> about Edmonton. And I do think there there could be significantly more use of bollards along the line, not just for um, you know protecting the train from cars, but protecting people and cyclists from, from cars as well. My frustration was highlighted, though, at a meeting of city council. I heard Councillor Karen Tang, in response to some of these complaints about crossing arms and gates, say... You know, it's a really good question why we don't have the gates and bells. And I encourage people to talk to TransEd and find the answer to that question. Not supporting the idea of urban development, not supporting the entire purpose of this one, over a billion dollar ur urban low floor LRT, but rather go ask the P3 contractor to give you some more car infrastructure. I'm hopeful that that's not going to be the prevailing perspective of council. But I do think it's going to be a risk for the longevity of this line. If this persistent narrative keeps up, we may end up with effectively a high floor LRT all across the city, cutting right through the middle of our downtown. If it ever opens. <laughs> One of the other things that was a bit of a question mark for us, we've talked about it previously on our episode with Dustin Bajer, is the plan to plant 2 million trees by... Uh, 2050. Mac, you did some reporting this week that looked into the budget deliberations and seemed to think there were some question marks about how we would actually implement this plan. Yeah, Taproot reporter uh, Colin Gallant, who you heard in a recent episode, uh, dug into this. So during the budget, we heard that 
uh, the cost per tree is about $3,500. So 2 million trees would make that about $7 billion, if my math is correct. And that just seemed untenable to me. So I thought, let's figure this out. Like, how, what is the actual numbers? What do they look like here? So here's what we've learned. The city does want to plant 2 million new trees by 2030. It's hoping to spend $114 million to do that. The original goal, as you pointed out, was 2050. But they also have this other goal around not the number of trees, but the amount of canopy coverage. And they want to hit 20% by 2071. Now, as you probably know, trees take time to grow. So they actually want to plant most of those 2 million trees sooner than that. They want to do that a lot more quickly than 2050. So they were aiming now to do this by 2030, which seems like a stretch to me, but that's the goal. Uh, and that'll help you know, give those trees time to, to grow and to produce the kind of canopy coverage that they're looking for. And we also got some more detail about the cost per tree. So it varies. It can be as low as $23, which I thought was an oddly specific number, but that's what they said, $23, or to $1,700. And that's kind of the, you know, the average. And it depends on the age of the tree, where you're planting it, you know, whether staff or volunteers or contractors are doing it. The more expensive trees are the ones that get put into what they call hardscape areas like sidewalks and parking lots and things like that. Uh, and those can cost, you know, $17,000 or maybe even more depending on, you know, the design and the construction and all that kind of stuff. So I imagine most of the trees they're looking to plant won't be done in hardscape areas. So that's what we learned. I want to ask a little bit about those prices for trees because... You know, trees are trees. I, I kind of think that trees are free because they just grow. But I recall, you know, YouTubers, Team Trees was a thing about a year ago, two years ago. And I remember it have being drilled into my head that $1 plants one tree. And granted, that was a US dollar. But the city is saying $23 to $1,700 per tree. Did we get any sense why it costs so much? I mean, the thing they said is, like I mentioned, the type or the age of the tree makes a difference, right? So if you're taking a tree that's already, um, you know, it's not a seedling, then there's going to be more of a cost, obviously. Um, but I think the big one probably just comes down to labor, right? Is it done by staff? Is it done by the Root for Trees volunteers? Or is it done by, you know, contractors who are obligated to do that as part of the construction work that they're doing? So I think that's what accounts for the, the variation in, in cost. Uh, maybe, in fact, they're actually, when they're planting a tree, they're making a podcast about it as well. So <laughs> it could be. I should point out of the 114 million, that's actually a mix of city and federal money that they're planning to spend to plant these 2 million trees. Uh, about 48 million is expected from the federal government's 2 billion trees program. And then the rest of it would come from city funding. I think everyone in Edmonton can agree that. A lot of trees with a very vibrant canopy makes Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. And the Well Endowed podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation, they're going to tell you the stories of people working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Lisa Pruden. And if you want to hear all these stories, you can subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. And that's all for this week, Mac. We are back after another week and... I think we are, like Sisyphus, back on the podcast hill, pushing it up every single week. Thank you for joining us. And if you enjoyed this episode, now would be a good time to go and tell a friend, give us a review. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.